to Breaking Down Bits, a conversation about great comedy bits with the comedians who wrote and performed them. Hey, Breaking Down Bits, Drew Jordan. How are you today, man? I'm great. I'm great. How are you doing, man? I am good. I am your co-host, Brian Gendron. I'm Drew Jordan, and uh, we're excited. We have, um, we're still making episodes, so that's neat, right? We hadn't stopped yet, so that's, that's something for us, right? Hey, we're still here, Drew. <laughs> we got a great one lined up today. Before we get into it, though, man, let's hit some callbacks. So last week, we met with Scott Dickers. Uh, what did you walk away with? I mean, honestly, it's kind of maybe the same thing I came with, but I loved the joke writing cheat sheet of the 11 funny filters. Obviously, that was the main thing we talked about, but I, lo I just love the idea of starting with a subtext and being able to just have a tool where you can just run through and try a bunch of different ideas uh, and hopefully you'll find something that works. And it's been super helpful for me. Like, you know, sometimes you write one joke, you have one thought, and you know there's something funny there, and a tool like the 11 Funny Filters is a way to shake that around enough till maybe you find the right way to, to share that joke. So I dig that. Drew, that is a long way of saying you learned nothing. Uh, no, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, you're right though, man. I mean, that, that sheet, although I have not picked it up, that was great. The Funny Filters, uh, you did a great job of cutting that into eight minutes. So look, you're short on time. Uh, uh, both that's available on YouTube or the full episodes about an hour. Uh, both are well worth it. He is just a wealth of comedy knowledge. Uh, my, my takeaway was just get, get it written. He was talking about writing uh, TV scripts and he just said, get it down on paper. You know, it's going to suck at first and then you refine it uh, over time. And so I didn't know if you know this, but I've been working on a movie script. I just got it down on paper. I did it, Drew. And yeah. so now, and it sucks, just like he said, and now we work on it. So <laughs> uh, it's a great episode. Again, go check that out. You can find us on Apple, on Google, on Spotify, and the and video version on YouTube. So go get it. Yeah. All right, Drew, who are we meeting with today? All right. Today, we are going to get to chat with kind of my original comedy mentor, in a sense. I started comedy in Nashville, had no clue what I was doing, went to the local comedy club website and saw that this guy was teaching classes. His name is Rick Roberts. Uh, I took, I've taken his classes in the past, his writing classes, his performance classes. Uh, he is very, very fun and sharp-witted and a great comic and, uh, and works a little differently than some of the other comics that we've talked to. So uh, excited to sit down and get some time in with Mr. Rick Roberts today. I'm excited too. Before we bring him on, let's do a quick intro. Clean comedian and creative keynote speaker Rick Roberts started his comedy career when he joined the nationally touring comedy troupe Midwest Comedy Tool and Die in 1992. He now has nearly 30 years of headlining experience across the United States and abroad. He's appeared in his own episode of Dry Bar Comedy on Pure Flick's Clean Comedy All-Stars and Shonda Pierce's Stand Up for Families. He's known for his spot-on impression of Barney Fife from The Andy Griffith Show, and he's helped thousands of aspiring comedians as the host of the long-running School of Laughs podcast. Rick Roberts, are you with us? Hey, man, I feel really official now. That was a nice <laughs> intro. 
<laughs> hey, your your uh, your bio and your list of accomplishments is is so long. I had to cut out a lot. So sorry. <laughs> I just picked the stuff that uh, I thought was the most fun. And but you've you've done a lot in comedy, uh, and obviously you gave me kind of the tools to start writing jokes and getting on stage and the confidence to get on stage. So thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm excited. This will be a lot of fun. Comedy is my favorite thing to do. Talk about. You name it, we'll talk it. Yeah. So here's where we start. Very simple, very open-ended, Rick. How does Rick Roberts write comedy? It goes through different phases, different times of year, different uh, busy seasons. So sometimes there's more time to write than others. Right now, you know, the, the since March 14th, that was my last out-of-town gig. You know, everything else has been virtual or small and then broadcast to other locations or whatever. But it's given me time to be in one place every single day, which is phenomenal and not normal for me. So I've got a great routine here the past several months where I wake up when I wake up, I grab a cup of coffee, go out to the back porch, I bring a notebook, try to go through a 70 page, you know, spiral binder every month. So two to three pages a day, uh, set up a topic in my mind. If I don't have a topic, uh, I might flip on the news really quick and just watch for the first thing that triggers a reaction in my brain. Like that's kind of weird or that's stupid or whatever and start writing on that. Uh, so, that, you know, I've probably got 15 minutes on the pandemic since it started and everything from the, the virus itself to the mass, to the treatments, to the vaccines, to the resistance to all this, to Americans wanting freedom more than health, just all these different things that pop up. And then I, I know enough to step away from some of that and write some stuff that's going to be timely when this thing is in our past or at least not as big of a topic and and I know that people who come out to a show aren't going to want to watch somebody talk about what they're trying to get away from for the whole time so I try to pick different topics and get as deep into it as I can uh, sometimes I gamify it you know uh, like I've been riding a bicycle a lot like you know 30 40 mile rides and and I, I realized nobody really cares when, when they, they can't tell the difference between a five mile ride and a 40 mile ride. So I'm like, I'll just write a, a whole page of comparison jokes today. You know, riding a bicycle is like this and just fill in the blank with, you know, 50 different answers till I find something that I like that I think I can put into the show. And once, once I get something that I like, I'll move it on over to a, another notebook at the end of the month, you know, at the end of each month, I kind of go through and harvest whatever's been in there that looks good. It's still growing. I'll take it, put it into the, Word doc on computer, you know, so I can reference it real easy and make edits real easy. And then I'll take it to the next show that I'm doing. You know, I've got a warm up gig that I do here in Nashville twice a month. So it's always a good thing for me to have new material for that. So I try to do a new five minutes each time I do that. So every two weeks, a new five minutes out of that book and I pull from the previous month's work. So that's kind of a long answer, but it, there's a million different ways, but that's the way it is right now. Yeah, that's awesome. Sounds like uh, you, you're one of those classic comedians who has like a million different notebooks. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 get, I start to lose track of what's what pretty quick. And I'm like, oh, I started a new one because I couldn't find the other one. And now I found the other one. And now ah, I got the stack of, of books. No, 100%. <laughs> you know, I've got, I think I have, I'm not like Jerry Seinfeld where I ripped all the pages out and covered a street in <laughs> New York with them. But I've got milk crates full of, of jokes from way back in the early 90s when uh, I started so, and I'll occasionally grab a milk crate, bring it out on the patio and start looking through it. And there's some ideas that I had back then that I didn't know how to articulate or get across, or I couldn't tell it because I wasn't a good joke teller yet, or I couldn't perform it because I couldn't perform well yet. 
and every once in a while I'll grab one of those and bring it into the to today, you know, and update it and, and get it out there. Yeah, that's so. super fun when you can go back and grab an old thing that you maybe, especially for me, because I haven't been in comedy for that long. There's, I can go back and look at old jokes when I, before I really had the tools to really like make something funny and you go, oh, I, maybe I can actually work with this now. That's kind of fun to go back and resurrect something. Yeah, yeah. I always think it's, if you don't, you know, comedy is like farming and anybody can farm, but if you don't have good seeds, good inspiration, good nuggets to start with, you're just going to be watering weeds. You know? So get, get those brain ideas down, get those seeds in a notebook somewhere so you can go and pull from it later on for sure. Let me ask you something because I'm a, I start with digital, you know, I start typing and, and that makes it easy for me to search and query. Have you ever lost anything like, um, like for good in your notebook? You're like, I know I wrote something down. I can't find it and I can't recall it. Have you ever, has something been lost in there? Well, yeah. So that's, that's why I went back to notebooks because I, I had been throwing it into the laptop quite often and I had a laptop stolen one time. I got off a flight, left it, you know, right there by my feet and I, 10 minutes later, I realized I went back, it was gone. And not only did it have years worth of writing in there and stuff I was working on, but, you know, shows that I had edited down that I was going to put out all kinds of stuff. And so when it comes to material, it's, it's kind of too precious to, to risk like that. So a notebook. And then once again, at the end of every month, I kind of harvest that the better stuff and put it into a document and that's on a Dropbox, so I can't lose that. Hopefully, you know, unless Dropbox goes down and gets hit by a missile or something. <laughs> So, yeah, you don't want to lose the good stuff, but the best way to make sure you don't lose it is get it on stage as quick as you can and say it, because once you've performed a joke, I, I think it stays with you a lot longer than something that you're, you're happy you wrote down in a book, you know? No doubt. So, what, what goes through your head when you are preparing for a set? Like, say you have a, you have a show coming up, what kind of preparation do you do to, to prep for, for a specific set coming up? Yeah, it's a good question, because every set's different, every audience is different, the expectations are different. So first thing in my head is, you know, who's going to be in the audience? What age group? There's no reason for me to do a, a joke about Minecraft. If I'm performing, you know, for a, a Dell web community where they're 55 and up. So let's just, <laughs> let's just cull down the material to what's going to fit for that group. And then look at what I try to do is start with the thing that connects me to them the quickest and the most authentic. So if I'm speaking to, let's say an older group, I'm 51. So I do a lot of things for people my age and up, you know, and maybe 10 years below. That's kind of where comedy works in general but I'll, I'll try to find what's what are they going through that I'm going through because people will always connect with emotions before they'll connect with a topic mm. you know what I'm saying so when you get and that's a good kind of thought for anytime you get stuck with writer's block people are like I need to think of you know Jerry Seinfeld I gotta write a new pop-tart joke I gotta you know I'm, I'm <laughs> in my 60s but I gotta write a new pop you don't need to write a new pop-tart joke write about how you felt about something and everybody has those same feelings and they'll connect or they'll look at you crazy for the way you connected. So the connection's a big thing. Knowing how long you have to do on stage obviously is important. You don't want to try to jam 10 minutes into a five minute set. You're better off doing three minutes in a five minute set and exploring some things on stage while you're up there. Mm. The audience never knows if you left a joke out, left a tag out. So don't get hung up on those things, but hit the stage knowing what you're going to open with for sure. Close with, and if you've got the time, and you should have the time, run the set on the way to the gig in the car. Say it five or six times. If it's a five-minute set and a 20-minute drive or whatever, just get it to where you can know enough to forget it and still get back into it. When you, I want to ask a quick question before we continue. Uh, so when it comes to preparing for the set and you, you want to, I love that, connect with emotions before people connect with emotions before topic. That's a wonderful thought. Um, how would you actually see that in a more tangible way? 
Yeah, you know, a better way to say it might be, um, I want to get comfortable with the audience and them comfortable with me as quick as possible. So if that means, you know, I've got five new minutes, but none of those five new minutes is a great, has a great opening bit in it or a great opening joke, I might sh shove some of that to the side and, and bring something back that's maybe more tried and true for that age group or for that type of audience and know that it's mo more important for me to get started right so everything else flows well than it is for me to, to just prove that I can do five new minutes. So, you know, finding what works. Um, and, and once you get there, you don't have to, you don't have to uh, belabor the point of trying to connect with them. Once you've connected with them, then you can take them anywhere. Gotcha. But it's hard to, you, you, you don't want to launch into a five minute piece when you only have a five minute set. It just, if they don't connect in the first minute, they're like, this guy's still talking about raising brand. What's going <laughs> yeah. on here? You know? <laughs> So let's, let's get into just the, the very few moments right before you go on stage. I'm sure you're very familiar with those, maybe not as familiar these days as, as in right. past years, but uh, what are you doing right before you go up? Uh, yeah, several things. Hydrating is important, you know, because no matter how long you've done it, uh, you, you, get a, you should get a little, I wouldn't say nervous, although that could be the case, but you get anxious. You should have a heightened sense of awareness before you go on stage because people are going to be looking at you. You want to be articulate. So I drink as much of a bottle of water as I can. So I fully hydrate. So I don't go out there and, and clam up right away. And if they see you clam up, they won't even know they see you clam up, but you'll notice it. And then you'll, it, it's a downward spiral. So hydrate's important. Uh, I look around the audience, you know, if I can, if I'm where I can see them on the way up to stage, I kind of look around and see what they're into, what they're, you know, what they look like. Are they on dates? Is it mostly a, is it a, a group of 30 guys over here? I just kind of make sure I know what I'm walking into. So, I, and so I can reference it. And I always look at the stage and whatever the audience can see, if there's things off to the side of the stage, they can see those might be things that I can make fun of or draw attention to or draw attention away from if they're distracting. So I always want to make sure I see what they see. Mm. Uh, nothing's worse than finishing a set, walking off stage and go, Oh man, there's a huge picture of an octopus behind me the whole time. I <laughs> they're staring at that and looking at me. I could have said something about that. So, you know, being aware of your surroundings. And then too, I always tell myself, uh, it's like three S's smile, slow down, and sell it. This is material that you worked hard on. Don't just kind of dismiss it or like that joke's not going to work or, Oh, you didn't like that joke. Give the joke as much attention and a focus as you can so that it does well. You would never like, if you're a car salesman, you wouldn't go, Hey, you've got 10,000 bucks. Well, you might want to spend it on this piece of crap over here. Or there's, there's a car over here that doesn't work <laughs> most of the time. You get out there and you, you tell the best of the best and really get it across. So hydrate, slow down, sell it, smile. Hey, that's awesome. That's great. That's great advice. Uh, especially looking at the stage. Like that's uh, it's such an obvious thing when you say it, but before that, I'm not sure I would have ever considered that. That's a great, that's a great tip. Just so you know that your, your head space is in, in the same space as them. Uh, so let's, let's go ahead and jump in to our clip today. I'm excited about this one. Can you tell us any, help us set up about this recording? about this opportunity with Drybar, uh, just give us the, the pretext before we play the clip. Okay, so two things that were interesting about this Drybar taping is a week before they informed me, they didn't really inform me, I heard through other comics that instead of doing a, a 45 minute set, you were gonna be doing a 22 minute set. Hmm. So the two or three months leading up to that, I've been working on a full set, and then I kind of heard that I might be just doing 22. I couldn't get any answer from Drybar they didn't, I didn't know I could have gone up on stage that day and then 45 minutes and been justified in it because that's what they, that's the last thing they told me. 
but anyway, so I had to, to chop things out, cut things down. And, and that, that changed obviously the selection of material. And I decided what I was going to do is do two 22 to 25 minute sets of different material. So what they cobbled together is a little bit from the first show, a little bit from the second show, but I didn't do any joke, both shows. Oh. So what, what you see, any joke that's all the way through on my special is the way it was that night. It wasn't like, and here's the punchline from show number two, cause it, it wasn't even in the show. Um, the other thing, speaking of backdrops, <laughs> as I walked in this showroom to get ready for this show, I saw the backdrop that I was going to have to perform in front of, and I, I really wanted them to close the curtains, to be honest with you. It's extremely distracting. It's a, it's, you'll see it here in a second. We'll talk about it afterwards. And I talked about it in a set, you know, in a couple of jokes that they end up cutting out because I guess they didn't want you making fun of it. <laughs> so there's a lot of things going on behind me in the set. Uh, but I'm talking about one of my favorite people in, in my life. Uh, it probably made me laugh earlier on than anybody else. And then uh, I think that sets it up enough and, and why I was fascinated with him. And then we'll talk about it on the backside. Thanks. Sounds awesome. I'm, let's get into it. <laughs> Look at that backdrop, people. <laughs> <laughs> I do love traveling around. I grew up in Kentucky and uh, boy, grew up tobacco farming with all my crazy uncles on the farm growing up. I know y'all probably got crazy uncles, right? Some of y'all probably are the crazy uncle in the family. <laughs> we got my uncle Chuck. He's awesome. He's 89 years old, 50% Irish and 50% Italian. That's a combo. Very pale and pasty white and angry and hairy all at the same time. <laughs> Looks like a marshmallow's been kicked around on the barbershop floor. <laughs> yeah. Not the guy you want to take to the beach in Speedos, we found out. <laughs> He's scared of shrimp away, and they've got tiny eyeballs. <laughs> That's my Uncle Chuck. Tore up from the floor up, Chuck. Yeah. He, uh, he's always been tore up. Even when I was a kid, it was, he was fascinating. He had a glass eye, a toupee, and false teeth. I'm like, That's not an Uncle. That's Mr. Potato Head right there. <laughs> take his eyeball out. <laughs> He's still got the glass eyeball, uh, but he's had like this, he had the same one for a long time, like 30 something years. Kind of let the maintenance slide, if you ask me on it. Started getting a little mossy on the north side, y'all know what I'm saying? It's kind of like. But he didn't know any better, so we finally, last Thanksgiving, we were hanging out. We said, Do you mind if we get you a new glass eye? He's like, You're the one that's got to look at it, knock yourself out. Fair enough. So we got his hopes up. Then we started looking for them, and they're a little pricey. We had to get on eBay and look for a gently used one that we could all pitch in on. <laughs> you ever Google a glass eyeball on eBay? They got them. They had a BOGO special on Thanksgiving. <laughs> I didn't even know what a BOGO was, but they have a lot of them on Thanksgiving, sure enough. So we got him a regular one for day-to-day -day use. And then for the weekends, we got him a magic eight ball glass eye. <laughs> he loves it. Sometimes it's confusing. He's shaking his head no, but he's saying, ask again later. <laughs> oh, man. You've got your, your uh, you've created a character. We actually got into character quite a bit with Scott Dickers in the last episode. Uh, and it's your uncle. And you did a nice job. The way Scott said it was one to three characteristics. And I think you hit on that. You sort of got his, his Irish, Italian paleness, hairiness. And then, and then of course, his, his, uh, his, his 
Mr. Potato Head in this, his, his uh, modular face, modular head, if you will. So, so very good job. Thank you. All his cranial accessories. I just love the way that um, uh, the marshmallow bit just like, uh, one, yeah, I do want to know, you do, you set up your character immediately in this bit, like the first joke, you kind of go, I grew up in Kansas, so like, you're just, you're helping the audience, it feels like maybe put some pieces together about where your jokes are coming from, and then, but that marshmallow, I think I love everything about that chunk, it's so visual, how did, how did you get to the final product of that, of that chunk? You know, that one, I, I remember, this was from really early on, and I'd never had a good recording of it, so I wanted to put it into the special. I mean, this was probably in my first two or three years of doing stand-up, and uh, I was big into visuals back then. I, I was very physical when I first started. <clears throat> mm -hmm. I would, I mean, I would be physically exhausted at the end of the show from flailing around and falling on the floor, <laughs> whatever, you know. I, I like Jim Carrey and Steve Martin and all these guys, so I thought, that's what you, you have to do what you like. You don't have to do the same comedy as the people you like. You can take stuff from it. But um, he was—he had so many interesting characteristics, and probably the first comedy technique that I used, and it's all over this, is just exaggeration. Let's take one little thing and magnify it, and see how fun and goofy and still believable in the descriptions you can make it. But always, um, always setting up an expectation and then taking it somewhere different. So the misdirection with how deep you get into it, and you know, kicking the marshmallow around the barbershop floor was one of those lines that, you know, I don't know how I came up with it exactly, but <laughs> once I, I think first it was, he looked like a marshmallow has been, had fallen on a barbershop floor. And then I realized kicking would be more action, more activity. It's got hard case sound in it. So I switched to that. Nice. Forever. I remember trying to find the name of a barbershop to put in there. Mm. And, you know, I could actually well, take it right. down and say, kicking around the bottom, the kicking around a marshmallow around the supercuts floor or something like that. It might make it 1% funnier, but that's your job as a comedian is always to find a way to make it a little bit more interesting or a little bit more funnier and less words. But I just like the fact that he did have a glass eye. It, uh, it was fascinating. He would take it out and like show it to us. And we were like, oh, man. And he just got a kick out of us, you know, five, six, seven-year-old kids at the time when I first saw it, just laughing at it. And he didn't, he didn't care at all. He's like, it's, it's just who I am, you know. So just bringing him into my show was just a fun way of uh, including stuff from my childhood. But also I, I found it over the years that when I talk about things that are based in truth around people that I actually know, I'm excited to get to that part of the show. Cause I can see, I can hear their voice in my head. Like it's, it's a real thing instead of something that you're trying to construct on a piece of paper to have all those elements without having the actual origin of those elements. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I, you know, I immediately clung to the eight ball part of, part of your set because uh, every childhood had that eight ball in it. Right. So you're relating to, every, I think they're still around, right? Maybe it's on the computer now. I, I don't know. There <laughs> but, is an app, but every child had <laughs> sure. that. Uh, yeah, there, there must be. And uh, every child had that. And I, my, what I'm most curious about is you, you could have gone, I don't know how, how many sides are on that thing. 12, you could have gone with 12 different responses and you went with the two that you went with. How did you choose? You know, I, I think I actually went, when I wrote that joke, went to the store and just kind of picked one up because I didn't, this, you know, this was before Google when I wrote this joke. So I actually went <laughs> Toys R Us or something and kind of shook it around and looked at all the things just to make sure I didn't miss one that was more appropriate, you know, but, uh, you know, the answer is hazy. I thought with his glass eyeball not being clean for so many years, that was a perfect fit. Um, mm -hmm. 
so I just kind of dialed in the ones that made the most sense. I actually saw an old, an old clip of that bit um, somewhere online and you'd, you'd punch it up a little bit. You changed it a little in some small ways. Um, one thing that wasn't in the previous version that I thought added a lot to it is you mentioned that this was, this eight ball was for the weekend and that kind of like added a weird kind of fun twist to it. Like this was like, I don't know. You're just like having a, weird eyeball is fun <laughs> yeah, is, yeah, break it out for special occasions yeah, on the yeah. weekend yeah yeah yeah. yeah I, was, that was I was thinking you know staying in the line with you know keeping the maintenance up now that he got two on the bogo special and bogo just kind of popped out one night when i was on stage i'm like oh that's a great comedy word bogo you know it just sounds funny and people pe most people know what it is but not everybody like my dad wouldn't know who it what a bogo is so i mm -hmm. i kind of say i don't even know what a bogo was but it sounds you know turned out to be a good deal or whatever but just kind of dialing those things in uh, and having one for the weekend that, you know, while the other one's being cleaned, <laughs> kind of stuck with the, the authenticity of the actual joke. Like he needed a new one, yeah. but he was rotating them in a fun way. So you're having the weekend <laughs> glass eyeball for parties. And <laughs> yeah. And before we move on to the second half of our, of our clip from your dry bar special, I just wanted to call out that, look, one writing prompt may be what you recommended, which is to go back and look at the characters in your life, whether it's your, your family, certainly those are a good source of my life. Uh, maybe it's teachers or, or, or anybody from your childhood is a great place to draw from. Because like you said, you have that nostalgic moment and you're excited to, to be on stage. And sometimes it's hard as a comic to show up excited doing the same material night in and night out. And, yeah, uh, and, yeah. and, and great that you called great that you if I could add something to that, that is kind of reversing what we're, we're talking about here is including real people into your show. Once you have a show, this exercise I do, you know, once in a while is I just jot down a stick. Okay. I listen to my set or watch my full show. And anytime I mention somebody, even if it's just as a reference or if it's a longer bit like my uncle Chuck or my wife or kids, I just draw a little stick person on a sheet of paper and, and put the name of that person on it. And so at the end of listening to an hour, you might have 12, you might have 30 different people you mentioned in your show. And now you can look at, look at something physical and visual and say, okay, well, I've got a bit about uh, driving across Kansas. What if this person was in the car with me instead of me being alone? Because once you mention somebody, they're a character. It's just, you're doing a performance. So just think of it as either a sitcom or you're bringing these characters back in at the most inopportune moments or the perfect moments for them to interrupt you but they're all different opinion. They're all different source. So they can all be a different tagline or different angle for your joke. So you can bring somebody back in and it changes everything. And the audience already has the setup of who that person is. Cause you've introduced them and talked about them before. Wow. That's great. That's, that's real. That's a really good note to, yeah. You guys should I mean, do that today is, is listen to your act. And just, that could be your writing assignment one morning. You just, let's just draw a picture of everybody that's in my show right now. I like that a lot. That's really awesome. I'm going to go ahead and play the second part of our clip today. And uh, one thing I, I noticed too, and you kind of mentioned it there, is that you, you have a transition. So you, you, my uncle lets me borrow his CDs and then you get into the next bit. Uh, I, I'm curious about that. Do you always transition? Do you feel the need to transition or is this just in this particular moment? Or I'm always curious about what comics take is on transitions, the need for them. Yeah. So there is, there really isn't a need. You can just stop, take a drink of water and start into a new bit. It, that is fine. It, it's a little choppy to me. You know, it's not as seamless. So I always like to have, and this is another exercise you can do is 
take an index card, put the name of the bid on it, throw it on the floor, do that with all your bits, and just look at how would I get from bit seven to bit one? What's one sentence I can say that takes me there? And shuffle it up, do that with all those things. That way if you're on stage and you can't remember what's supposed to be next, you have a line to get you to any bit in your show. And it also helps you if you, if you just totally freeze up, you can visualize those cards. You know, Having something written at one point that you see, you can pull that memory back up and that gives you some clues and cues on which ways to go. So for this particular one, I'm like, I hadn't done the Uncle Chuck bit in a long time in my show. It was in there, but now how am I going to get from that to my closing bit? And so I just, the, the, another thing that he naturally did was give me his music when he was done with it or when he thought I might get into it. So that in that time frame when this thing actually happened, it was CDs. So I just kind of just dropped <laughs> those two together. Nice. Drew, uh, Drew, we have a lot of homework. Cancel your plans this weekend. These <laughs> yeah, there'll be more. There's going to be more. <laughs> All right, let's get into it, guys. He gives me his CDs and stuff to listen to, and I, I love it when I'm driving. This is a beautiful country out here. I got to be totally honest. Y'all know that. Some places I drive nothing. To, I got to drive across Kansas last summer. Oh, survivors, anybody tried that trip? <laughs> I knew it was going to be flat. I didn't know you had to bring your own people. I had no idea. <laughs> It's a BYOP state, the whole cross. I didn't know. That tornado from the Wizard of Oz took everything with it, I reckon. So I'm driving across. What I also did not know is the highway patrol has to be extra sneaky in Kansas because they have nothing to hide behind, right? They got to drive Mustangs or Trans Ams or Camaros. And sometimes they're pulling a bass boat, and that's just cheating. I had no idea. But if they don't drive something like that, you could spot them six or seven hours away. So you got to be careful. But you've been there, you know. So I'm driving. I'm in what I call my Dave Ramsey truck. Y'all remember Dave Ramsey? He says, drive it till it blows up. I was close. 1996, three out of four cylinder Isuzu pickup with a camper top on back. That's a woman getter right there, ain't it? <laughs> I'm trying to catch up to that guy. It takes about 30 minutes. Then he started slowing down. Then he speed up. Then he'd slow down. Then he started switching lanes and kicking up gravel. I'm like, that guy has fallen asleep behind the wheel or something. I should try to get his attention and see if he's okay. Oh, you ever been so stupid you pulled the cops over? Anybody else? <laughs> There's a lot of paperwork in that one. <laughs> I don't even know how to pull anybody over, so I just start flipping my one good high beam at him for a little while. Roll down the window. I'm like, woo! Woo! That's pretty good, ain't it? I've been practicing. I must have swallowed 13 skeeters before he pulled over. Big old Kansas skaters. They could have stood on their tippy toes and pistol whipped a chicken. They were big skaters. <laughs> Got the West Nile hanging right off. But the guy pulls over. I'm like, game on. I pull over behind him and wait for him to get out. He doesn't get out. I'm like, he maybe he's injured or something. I hop out of my truck, walk up to his window. I just start pounding on his window. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's been loading the revolver on the other side. <laughs> Then he cracks the window, and I see he's an officer. I got zero game plan. But I start thinking maybe I should arrest him before he arrests me. <laughs> he was reckless driving, for sure. 
But I don't know how to rest anybody. All I know is from watching the Andy Griffith show my entire life. Like Barney Fife, I just walk up there. I'm like, hey! Get out of the vehicle there, buddy. <laughs> you just keep on getting out, don't you? <laughs> Wanna know why I pulled you over? <laughs> Cause I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so much to uh, to tackle there. Let's rewind that back and get back to uh, the beginning part in my mind. Um, I love that this is to me a great exercise in storytelling, but with punchlines. So like so many times we, you know, a funny story happens in our lives and we want to try to recreate that on stage and it can be really hard to turn a, 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 fun, a story that kills your friends. Like everyone in the room's dying. It can be hard to translate into a, to that a bit, to that into a bit on stage. You do it so well. How, how does how do you figure how you work on all these punchlines and how do you get those into the story kind of format? You know, it takes, it takes time. Obviously you have your original version of the story and then you, then you have to turn it into comedy. And you know, uh, there's a huge difference between funny storytellers and stand-up comedians. You know, the expectation of the audience is a laugh at the end of every sentence pretty much when you're a comedian, whereas a right. storyteller, the audience can be riveted just by the way you're presenting the material and they, you can draw them in and those things. So, the first thing is, is to get everything down on paper. Um, a friend of mine, Dave Ricker, who teaches storytelling, has a great phrase to help you every kind of get there. And you can just, instead of storytelling, you can put in stand-up comedy in this statement. But storytelling or stand-up comedy is not journalism. Mm -hmm. You don't have to report on every fact that, that happened as it happened. That would, that would not be exciting for the audience. It wouldn't be exciting for you to tell it. So you got to give yourself some freedom to do it. Um, this bit to me is, is, it's one of my favorites because it's, it's, I'm inside the bit, then I'm outside the bit five years later. I'm inside the bit, I'm outside the bit with the audience. I'm inside the bit. So there's like two movies going on and I could, I could tell the bit straight through without giving my reaction to what happened. And that's like a 90 second joke where I can narrate the story and get in and out of it. And it's like a five or six minute piece sometimes. So it has a lot of the storytelling elements to it. It's got the beginning, a middle, and an end, but it has the comedy in it. You know, it's got the punchlines. It's got the exaggerations. Uh, several times in there where there's not a laugh at every 10 seconds, I'm building up contrasts so that the, the laughs are bigger when I get there. You know, when I think when he starts swerving around, it's, it changes my perception of what's going on. Now I think he's injured or there's, he's sick or maybe he's had a heart attack or whatever in my brain. So I feel justified in pulling him over to make sure he's okay, which is not something you normally think when somebody is swerving on the road, but I'm building up an expectation that he might be, you know, that I'm, that the expectation is going to blow back in my face because it's not what I thought. So right. that's another, another form of misdirection. There's uh, <clears throat> the element of risk too, I think is what's missing in a lot of stories. So I'll, I'll slow down here for a second because this is something I didn't learn really until the last couple of years. 
a joke that gets a big reaction typically has a bigger risk involved for you. So there's something in, in stake that you could lose during the course of this premise or this joke. There's something at risk. And if you do or don't lose it, that's much bigger than having a story where there was no risk involved. You're just describing something that happened. Oh. So the risk in this story, obviously, is uh, getting a speeding ticket or getting worse for, you know, posing like an officer or, you know, being belligerent to an officer, or those kinds of things. And that hypes up the awareness for the audience. Like this, this could go really wrong here any second. And even though it's comical, you have the, the perceived risk in there. And I've gone back since I've learned that and reworked some jokes that didn't have a risk and put risk in there. And, and the reaction is always bigger. That's funny. It makes the first thing I think of is like movies, like um, all of Adam Sandler's stuff. You know, the Happy Gilmore. There's a lot of risk. It is 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 weighing. He's got to save his grandmother's house or whatever. And so the, all the comedy is built on he's got to win, or his grandmother is going to be destitute uh, and stuff like that. That's a really good point. I love that. Yeah, I wish I'd discovered that earlier on, but it was just something that I kind of naturally came across a few years ago. I'm like, oh. You know, mm -hmm. um, it increases the contrast to everything because now there's something really on the line in the story. Yeah. And it can be more confrontational too. like, I'll, I'll give you a quick example of a joke recently that I wrote that I rewrote once I remember to add some risk to it. Um, the joke is, you know, my, I'm home a lot now because I can't travel. My eight year old said, why are you here all the time? <laughs> and I said, well, it's, it's my job's considered non-essential. Do you know what that means? She's like, no, I said, it's something that is nice to have, but you don't have to have it. And she goes, oh, like a bike rack. And I'm like, yeah, I'm basically like a bike rack. <laughs> so that was like my first version of the joke. And it was, it was all right. But then I decided there's no risk in there. You know, there's, so the second time it was like, do you know what that means? She says, no. I said, it's something that's nice to have, but you don't have to have it. And she goes, oh, like your hair. <laughs> now it's personal and confrontational. And then I reply like, yeah, or like your college fund. <laughs> so there's much more at risk, a college fund, and, you know, than there was just a bike rack just because it's something that you don't need to have. So you can write a joke, but there's probably a better version of the joke somewhere else. That's nice. Uh, and I like, so Drew's question was about storytelling and I like to take into some storytelling as well. Uh, and basically what you said was you abandoned the idea that you need to get a big laugh every 10 seconds and you build up, you use the word build up, uh, an awareness and things like contrast. You talked about misdirection and then that perceived element of risk is, is, Wonderful. Uh, I'm, I'm myself I'm an, I'm an entrepreneur, no stranger to risk. And so more homework that Rick has given me for the weekend is to, <laughs> is to examine the amount of risk in my comedy. That, that's great, Rick. I appreciate you sharing that. You just oh, yeah. doing comedy is a risk, Brian. Like you, you, could be way, <laughs> you are a really successful entrepreneur and then you started doing stand-up comedy and it's really been downhill since then. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I do some blue material too. So yeah, it's true. It's a little risky. Uh, that's great. Uh, but no, I, you know, I really uh, appreciate that idea. And, and thanks for sharing uh, the where you were able to pull that from a, a, a simple conversation with an eight year old. Uh, can I zoom in on that for a moment, if you don't mind? Because uh, you do a lot. Of, we didn't see it here, but you did a lot of family stuff in that dry bar special. Uh, some of which, you know, your kids are going to see. Uh, not, not that you've, you you pushed it too far, but you know, you kind of make fun of your 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 high schooler, or, or at least him making fun of you, and uh, in, in that relationship. I don't know how much other material you have on them, but do you ever get concerned about them seeing that someday? And and no, no, they actually get pretty excited when I have. <laughs> I I yeah. tell them, 
because you know th they will occasionally see shows or they'll see a little spot on TV or YouTube or something like that. And so I don't want to be surprised at what I said about him. So even with that joke, the non-essential, I ran that by my eight-year-old and said, I'm going to put you in my show where you say, you know, that, you know, you, basically you're saying you've lost all your hair, but you're, you're saying it without saying it. So when you see me do that joke, I know it didn't really happen. Cause I also have to explain to my eight year old yeah. <laughs> lying. <Yeah>. I'm lying. <laughs> 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 comedy. And so I, I really try to tell her, I get paid to tell stories like move, you know, it's like movies or it's like cartoons. It's, it's not real, but it could be. And so when I say you said this, I don't want you to think that I'm calling, you know, that I'm lying. I'm just finding a way to, to it's you're, a, I hate to, I didn't say this to her, but she's a vehicle for me to say these words. Yeah. But I always let them know. And my son, they all love it when they get into my show. And <laughs> again, I try to put them in there uh, because I get excited about that joke. Cause I'm talking about my family and it's also, uh, you know, it's kind of a little sidebar real quick, but if I get stuck on stage with what I should talk about next, I just picture my, the picture of my family that's sitting on the mantle. Oh, I haven't talked about my wife. I got six minutes over here on that. I haven't talked about my daughter. Oh, I've got all this stuff about babies. And, you know, it helps me to remember I got groups of jokes associated with groups of people. Yeah. And then it makes, it makes a uh, church on Sunday really fun when your <laughs> child is calling you out for being a professional liar. <laughs> right. Or even better when you're doing a show at your church and your family's in the audience. Like they didn't then, happen uh, like that. No. Right. Your, your, your kid goes, you, you didn't uh, propose to her at a gun and knife show in Arkansas. You know, no, but it sounds funny that it did. <laughs> One thing I definitely want to touch on is you are just in this, especially in this bit, just murder the game with tags, especially when it comes right after the point where you do the, the siren thing. And I do love that little meta humor where you kind of, that's one of those moments where you step back and go, yeah, I've been practicing. <laughs> and then you, and then you're like, that's a fun, like, okay, here's some reaction. And now we're back in the story. You stacked up like, I don't know how many tags and it just like made what could have been a really short joke into uh, stretched it at least an extra minute of just tags and laughter and tag and laughter what what's your strategy for writing those amazing tags? Yeah, I, I do have a couple. Ideally, things just come to you. So you know, I don't want to discredit inspiration because I know lots of comics that just have natural inspiration and not a lot of writing techniques, and, and they're fine just because they have that huge fountain of, of ideas. But for me, if I get an idea and people laugh at it, I always challenge myself. There's three more things I can say here. There's sure. I, I like to have that rhythm of threes. You know, punchline. Then you've got two tags that logically can flow and the third tag could be somewhere that takes you off again. So that's, you're, you're resetting the expectations of logic, logic, something crazy, you know, the rule of threes. And so I look at tags as an opportunity to do that. And even if the first two are kind of funny, as long as it gets you to the next one and leads you to that third one, that's a big misdirection, they're worth having in there. So it, it could be strictly informational on those taglines, but it makes sense you would think that. Um, and the other thing I try to do, I'm not always aware of it as I should be, but when I'm doing an audience like that, that's all ages, you know, that dry bar, I think they let 14 to 94 in there. It's, and it's in Utah. It's about as, as, uh, as sanitized as it can be, but they, they will laugh. They are there to laugh. There's, there's no distractions besides that backdrop. But, uh, <laughs> but if I can throw in a little reference for somebody who's younger in a tagline, and a little reference for somebody who's older in a tagline. Then without doing any new setup, I've included somebody that's 90 in the joke, I've included somebody that's 19 in the joke, and I've included myself in there. So it's a great way to 
every joke bring people in who may not be your age group, your demographic, but you're referencing something they might get. So the tagline might get a 33% response instead of 100%, but you're including 100% of the audience by the time that third tag's hit. Right. So when the whole when the whole bit is through, you've touched the entire room in a very not literal way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I used to love <laughs> how you would also mention this about male and female. Sometimes it's nice if a joke is more positioned to make a, a guy laugh. You might find a tag that would be from a female perspective. That way, you bring the whole room in on the joke. Yeah. So I could do something like that, and from a man's perspective, and then the tagline being, or as my wife calls it, this. Or as my daughter sees it, this. Uh, or as, yeah. or as Oprah on her, or as, you know, picks, or on the View, they would call it this, and give my perceived female reaction. And if it's dead on, then it's funny. And if it's not dead on at all, and it's completely wrong, that could be funny too. Um, so it doesn't have to be again not journalism, but something that plays along with your concept. Right. Um, one, 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 one more thing I did want to bring up before we move on: um, the rhythm in that moment pounding on his window loading the revolver a sentence that would be a little funny without it that rhythm just turned that from a, an okay run-of-the-mill joke to just art <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a sense just it kills how did you come across or think about that that kind of a rhythm to add to it you know i'm glad you picked that out because i don't think i've ever really talked about that uh to, as far as I know, it's, it's not a, a comedy technique. It might not be on the 11 filters list or anything <laughs> that you guys have talked about. I call it an echo. And so it's, it's like an instant callback to something that they heard. They didn't, it's not necessarily a funny thing. It's just the rhythm is the callback. So the, the setup is uh, pounding on the window. And that's, that's different than all the pace of that entire bit. I slow down, it's pounding on. So it's, I, it's different to the audience. Like this is different. And then when I say he's loading the revolver, then that's, this is the same as what we just heard two seconds ago. Like it, yeah. it calls back a rhythm. I don't do that in too many other jokes. Uh, it's just one of those things that I kind of, when I had that line, it wasn't getting a big laugh every time. And so I would just exaggerate how I would pound on the window and when Winda used to be window, but <laughs> when I'm, it's funny when I'm recalling stories, I talk more like I do in my day-to-day -day life. And when I'm writing material, I, 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 I speak more like a speaker. I'm kind mm. of, in, I got a foot in both worlds. So it's important for me to, when I do stand up to realize to be more of me off stage than me in a professional setting. And so when the, you know, Skeeter's in there, some funny yeah. words like that. Um, and then the visuals in that bit, I like a lot too. There's always, you know, I set it up in Kansas. So you know exactly where I'm at. Uh, it, it, this could happen in Kansas. They drive all those types of vehicles, probably not dragging a bass boat behind them, but that's kind of funny <laughs> if they are. I have been tricked one time though by, there was a state trooper in one of the big SUVs and he was pulling a boat behind him. <laughs> it was one that was going to go patrol a lake for Department of Natural Resources or something, but it was covered up. He didn't know what it was. And of course he was going below the speed limit because he's towing and I get off try to go around him and he pulled me over. So that came out of a, a, a real scenario where I got pulled over by a cop who was pulling a boat. It wasn't a bass boat, Close but it was something that I just dialed in as I was thinking about my interactions with police officers that I can include, you know, pulled that one in. Yeah, that's, uh, that's so good. Uh, that, that rhythm stuff just really stuck out to me. And I was like, that is so, it just catches your attention. And you're right. It kind of does hit that same brain zone as a callback. 
it's almost like you created it or almost like you cre- instantly created a parody of a, of something you just said sort of kind of that's I love that idea and I I have no idea how to create that with my own bit but I love the idea of it <laughs> you know one way you might do it is if you have spouse girlfriend somebody that's maybe scolding you or telling you something or putting you in your place you you say it like she says you know get back to your room and you give an audience the beat and go and in my head i was thinking you know (laughs) so you're you're replying back to her in her voice in your head only but the audience is included yeah i like that yeah that's pretty smart and you can even go back to like your adolescence and like your 12 year old self when you used to you know make fun of people talking to you right Mm -hmm. oh yeah go into your 12 year old (laughs) brain yeah. Uh, and I think also it doesn't have to be that contrived, Drew. In fact, I, I think I've seen you on stage so many times. And I think once you're comfortable in a bit, then you you automatically go to where you're more natural because it's more natural delivering it. Right. right. So I've got I've got some cadence just thinking through some of my material. I've got some natural cadence built in. Uh, and I love it that you have a name for it, the echo. I think that's, that's really smart. So, yeah. And another thing, too, that I've learned over the years is speaking of cadence, sometimes you get into a jokey rhythm. And it, it starts to become, you, you've noticed it all on stage, right? You're up there and you're like, I'm kind of reciting in, in, you know, I'm in rote right now. I'm not actually performing. I'm just reciting. Mm-hmm. And it's important sometimes, it's, well, it's important every time once you recognize it, to snap out of it. You still want to keep pace and you want to keep your delivery and all that. But if, it's, if everything sounds like, and I love David Tell, but he, he does this on purpose to make fun of the way you tell jokes. Everything's like this. Hey, and here's my punchline now. You know, once mm-hmm. they see that, they're like, oh, this is just a, this is all just an act. It's a gimmick. But if you can step out of that with little things like that echo and changing up your pace, uh, it just makes it more like a real conversation. You, we would never just talk on the phone and be the whole time. Well, how you doing there, Drew? Everybody doing pretty good. How's it going there, fella? Everybody, you know, <laughs> you'd be like, what is this dude? He's not here right now. He's not with us. So yeah. it's important to be with the audience. And how about that backdrop? <laughs> <laughs> so, that, so a couple of things. So in, in the show, during that bit, they edited out that uh, I made fun of the backdrop. I, at one point, I turned around and go, there's a lot of roadkill here in Kansas. And I start, a, a jackalope, I haven't seen a jack, and a skeletal, and a head, what's that body down there? They took all that out because I was making fun of the backdrop. So I, I did include the situation, but they just said, no, that's not no, going to happen. No director's cut on this one, huh? <laughs> right, right. So we're, we're, we're going to land the plane, Rick. Uh, one of the things that we like to do is have a lot of fun with our guests. And uh, we call this last laugh. And that is, what would you, it's kind of morbid. What would you it want is. on your tombstone? <laughs> Let's pretend <laughs> you're dead. Your okay, last, start there. <laughs> All right, now you're dead. So what's yeah. your last laugh? Well, I think you alluded to it earlier on. Uh, one of my jokes I have is my 15-year-old, uh, realizing that he's starting to look like me mm. and I say yeah buddy what do you think about that and he goes what are you gonna do <laughs> and so I think my tombstone would say what are you gonna do <laughs> oh that so is so you? good you're dead you're gone what are you you're gonna do? Heaven, buddy we go do some comedy shows with uh, all the other comics that have left us too early <laughs> there you go hey well, Rick, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Some real, real gems and a lot of homework, as Brian said. A lot of, a lot of things that I think a lot of easy, fun takeaways that are really actionable. Um, so thanks for sharing that with us. We do want to give you a minute because, like I said, I had an absolute blast in your writing and performance classes. 
Uh, I believe you are now doing them virtual. You also have a comedy business class where you can take it to the next level. Give everyone the, the heads up on where they can find uh, those resources and what you got going on. Sure. Yeah, thanks. I, next week, actually on Tuesday, I'm going to kick off a three-session uh, writing class through Zoom. So I think most people are pretty familiar with Zoom by now. If not, you know, you know the difference between Zoom and a death row sentence? Eventually, the death row sentencing will be over. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to be doing a virtual class uh, August 8th. Let's see. Let me get the right dates here. 11th, 18th, and 25th. So the next three Tuesdays, uh, it's just 99 bucks. but we're going to write as the class goes on. I'm not going to give you homework and say bring it back next week. I might give you a little bit of that, but as we're in those two-hour sessions from 8 to 10 p.m. Central, we're going to be writing together. So um, it's going to be capped at 15 people. I believe I've got 12 in the class right now, so there's room for three more. We'll get in there. We'll, we'll go through some ideas. We'll talk comedy like we did today. I'll give you some some things to generate ideas, and then I'll help you apply techniques to make everything funnier. If you miss out on this round, you don't get in because there's only three spots left. There's a writing class online that does uh, a similar thing. You can take that at your own pace. It won't be those three sessions. It'll be, you can do it over you know, three months, six months, or a year. And there's different levels of engagement for me. If you want specific feedback on what you create, I can do that. If you just want to take it and do it your way, there's an option for that as well. All of that's at schooloflast.com. And if that class interests you, that's going to start up pretty soon. You can shoot me an email. Really, anytime you can shoot me an email, schooloflast at gmail.com. That's awesome. And you, we didn't really touch on it much, but you, one of the things that you've uh, done with your career is made the, the switch from touring and, and clubs. And you've really done a lot with, um, uh, I guess, seminars and keynote speaking and, I guess, company uh, corporate gigs. Um, mm -hmm. And you, do you still do your, your comedy business class that kind of helps people kind of figure out how to make how to generate money from comedy? Yeah, I've got that going on. And in fact, there's a couple of things I can offer people that might want to stick one foot in the speaking door. I have a, a class called Master Laughter Class, and that's specifically designed for people who have content, whether you're a blogger, a speaker, teacher, trainer, preacher, anybody that's in front of groups and you want to punch things up. That course is designed specifically, and it takes you through, I mean, a very actionable bunches of steps to get things funnier that you already have, as well as creating some new material. Uh, that whole website's masterlaughterclass.com, and that's online as well, anytime you want to take it. And uh, the, the time horizon on that is, is pretty unlimited. If, if you want access to that for the next couple of years, you've got it once you purchase that. And it comes with some coaching. Uh, it's another thing I do is I do some one-on-one -on -one coaching with some people when they have some stuff they just can't get over the hump with. They can't figure out how to make it better. I'm more than happy to, you know, spitball ideas and come up with some stuff with you. And those are, those are a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on the show and sharing a little bit of your brain and your comedy and, and all the resources that, that you, you make available to people who are trying to grow and get better. I am happy to do it. There's nothing worse than a bad joke. There's nothing worse than a bad comic. And there's, there's plenty of ways to fix both of those things. So let's, let's get out there and do it. Let's make every show better so people go see more shows. That's great. Hey, Rick, thanks for joining us. Great, great to meet you today. And next week, we're going to be live with with Danny Palumbo, same time, same place on Friday. Uh, so we we'll hope to see you there. And everybody have a great weekend. Go out, get out there and do some writings, breaking down bids. 
Thanks for listening to Breaking Down Bits. You can keep in touch or get more when you follow at Breaking Down Bits on social media. Visit the website BreakingDownBits.com or shoot us an email at BreakingDownBits at gmail.com.